Let's pray together. Father, we come to this place remembering the most important weekend in history. And it is our desire tonight to think about the cross, to engage with the realities of the cross emotionally, to think about it mentally and carefully, and to consider the great, great love of Christ for us and our great, great need for him. And so we pray, Father, that you would help us in this. Help us to think now about what he has achieved on the cross. Amen. Amen. If I were to ask you, what did Christ achieve when he died on the cross and rose again? I wonder how you'd answer the question. Certainly he accomplished many things through his death and resurrection, but perhaps the best summary is found in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. This is what it says. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. What did Jesus accomplish on the cross? Bringing us to God. More important than anything else, more important than the variety of aspects of Jesus' death on behalf of humankind, this central reality of Jesus bringing us to God stands forth because God is the most valuable. He is the most lovely. He is the most loving. He's perfect in his works, in his ways. God is our creator and our sustainer. And if there were any place that you would want to be, if there was any person that you would want to be in relationship with, it would be with God. And so when we say that Jesus suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, to the most important place, to be with the most important one, then clearly, clearly this is the most important aspect of the work of Christ. And that is what we remember on Good Friday. But how? How did he accomplish bringing us to God? The answer to the question of how Jesus does this is so often just relegated to sort of a mystical, theological category that we put aside as we engage with the realities of the crucifixion emotionally. But this evening, I want to encourage you to think with me, to think about three practical aspects of Jesus' work on the cross for us. We call this work the work of atonement. What Jesus accomplishes in his life, in his death, in his resurrection is atonement. And the word atonement means reconciliation between estranged parties, bringing them back into agreement with one another. Now, if you have been a Christian for any amount of time, or even if you're not a Christian but you're here tonight and you know about Christianity, you know the central reality of the Christian life is an understanding that our sin separates us from a holy, righteous, loving, 
just God. But Jesus' work brings us back into agreement or relationship with him. And he does this in three ways, at least three ways that I want to think about together. The first way is this. Jesus serves as our example. His death fulfills two human needs, an example for the total love of God and inspiring us to that love. What he could do, we can do as well. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 with me. It says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Likewise, 1 John chapter 2, 6 says, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. We know that Jesus, one of the ways in which he walked was fulfilling the desires of God and the law of God. Many of you might recall the prophet Micah in chapter 6 when he says that God has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. We know that God sets us this standard for life that reveals his own character. And the standard is communicated in a variety of ways, including in this law, including in the Ten Commandments. And so the Pharisees would come to Jesus and they would say, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Of these two commandments depend all of the law and prophets. When you look to Jesus, you see an example. You might have a lot of examples in life, maybe even a lot of good examples, maybe even a lot of godly examples, but no perfect example except for Jesus himself. He did not simply tell us how to live, but he showed us how to live. And his sacrificial death is the culmination and the realization of all of these things that he showed us about life. Jesus' total love for God inspires us to that very same love. He is our example. But thankfully, that isn't it. Because in and of itself, an example to follow is not effective in fully bringing us back to God, is it? I mean, we can have an example, and even if the example is perfect, we so often fall short in following. And that brings us to the second way that Jesus brings us back to God. Jesus serves as the victor. The second part of this atonement is Jesus exercises victory over sin, over death, and over the devil. And this victory was obtained through the payment of a ransom. The ransom price was the person of Jesus himself. Now, it's quite obvious to all of us that we could not conquer sin, death, or the devil. If you try to conquer sin, you're reminded very quickly, as Romans 6 explains that we are slaves to sin before we come to faith in Christ. In a very real sense, our sin nature compels us to sin and to keep sinning. And so, we all know this to be true in our experience, don't we? 
I do things I don't want to do. I say things I don't want to say. I think things that I don't want to think. I can try to conquer sin in my life, but yet it is always lurking right around the corner. But the good news of Christ is that he conquers sin. Romans chapter 5, verse 17 says, For if because of one man's trespasses, that's the sin nature we have in Adam, if one man's trespasses, death reigned throughout that, through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one sin led to condemnation for all men, so too the act of righteousness that leads to justification and life for all men. For as one man's disobedience, the old Adam, many were made into sinners, so by one man's obedience, Jesus, many were made to be righteous. He conquered sin. But he also conquered death. And we also understand very plainly that we cannot conquer death on our own. There are two examples of people in the Bible that did not die, and they did not conquer death, that the Lord took them. Everybody else dies. Some of us die early. Others of us die after many, many years. Some of us die in ways that we would never choose, and others of us die peacefully in our beds. We all die. It's just a matter of when. And this death is an affront to God, to his creative work, and it's a direct consequence of humanity's sin. But you know what? Jesus conquers death. We know that Christ being raised from the dead, Romans 6, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. And so you can live to God as well. And we also all know that we don't conquer sin of our own, we can't conquer death of our own, and we certainly can't conquer the devil of our own, can we? The devil is a spiritual being who's known as the prince of the earth. He has a legion of demons at his command, and his desire is to lead as many toward himself and away from God as possible. But Jesus is the victor. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You see, Jesus accomplishes something that we could not do on our own. He conquers sin, he conquers death, and he even conquers the devil. He is the eternal victor. And in his victory, this is one aspect of him bringing us close to God. But if you think of Jesus as an example, you think that's helpful. But I'm, but I'm, I'm sure thankful that isn't it. <laughs> because as an example... We can only walk down the path so far, and then we stumble along the way, don't we? When you think of Jesus as the victor, you think to yourself, that is, 
when I really actually stop to think about the profound things that he exercises victory over, it is truly amazing. But, I, but I'm thankful that that is not it. Because victory will ensure that these things never happen again, but in some ways I'm already damaged. I've already sinned. I already stand condemned. And his victory is great that I won't continue in those types of things, but I'm not sure if that's something I'll completely enjoy in my current state. And so there comes to us in the Bible a predominant way. The main thing that Jesus accomplishes in how he brings us back to God something that serves maybe as a framework for the other two. And that is Jesus as the substitute. Now, when we think of a substitute, our mind often goes to the idea that the substitute is something lesser than the original. Right? Substitute teachers usually aren't as good as the teachers who are there in the classroom every week. Substitute coming off the bench in the basketball game is not as good as a member of the starting five. And if I'm at a restaurant and I see something on the menu that has a meat substitute, I'm not interested at all. But when Jesus comes as our substitute, this is no second stringer. In fact, it's a significant upgrade. Because... He bears a penalty that we cannot bear, and he provides a solution that we cannot provide as this substitute. Our sin stains us, doesn't it? It enslaves us. It makes us impossible to be with a holy God, because we are not holy. And rightly, God's response to sin is wrath. And this wrath burns against the sin and against the sinner. But God has this incredible balance of his anger towards sin and sinner, but his love for humanity. And he did not want this humanity to be condemned. And so he sent a substitute. Romans 5, 6 says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And we see the reason for this. The reason for this is found in Romans chapter 3. Jesus, whom God puts forward as a propitiation by his blood, that is a wrath appeaser by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We need a substitute, and God in his love and his grace and his mercy provides such a substitute that he might justify you and be the justifier himself. His righteousness needs to be satisfied. We could not satisfy itself. Penalty for sin needs to be paid. We could not pay it ourselves. So in his love, Jesus becomes a substitute. That brings us full circle. 1 Peter 3, 18. We look to Jesus 
on the cross. And what do we see? What do we think? What do we feel? Yes, we feel, and we should feel, remorse for our sin. As Martin Luther once said, we were the ones who put him there, as if we were pounding the nails in ourselves. When we look to the cross, what do we see, what do we think, what do we feel? We should think about forgiveness. But even more than that, what this forgiveness accomplishes. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. When we look to the cross, we see in all of its glory, in all of its awe, in all of its pain, a pathway to God. And one to lead us right down that path. So how does he do it? Well, he does it in three ways. He serves as our example. He serves as the victor. He serves as our substitute, paying a penalty that we could not pay. And the question then remains for all of us as we ponder Good Friday is if he's providing the way back to God, are we taking that way? And it comes through faith and trust and reckon recognition of who he is and who we are. Friends, let's remind ourselves of this through a physical reality, and that is the Lord's Supper. We regularly celebrate the Lord's Supper in our church, and on Good Friday, it has, of course, even a heightened sense, as just days before Jesus died, he sat with his disciples and he said to them, Take and eat my body given to you, my body broken for you, foreshadowing his body being broken on the cross, a penalty that you could not pay. Take and drink, this is the cup of the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins, a reconciliation that you could not achieve. And when we read about it, we see in Matthew chapter 27, from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land. Jesus had been on the cross for some time already, and the sky turned pitch black. And this happened until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it for him to drink. But others said to him, wait, let us see if Elijah comes to save him. And Jesus cried out again, with a loud voice, he yielded up his spirit. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and 
rocks were split, and the tombs were also opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, coming out of the tombs after his resurrection. They went to the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and saw what happened, they were filled with awe. And they said, truly, this was the Son of God. Tonight, as we take the Lord's Supper, we will ask you to come forward to receive the elements. And in coming forward, what you are saying is this. Jesus brings us to God, and I am walking down the aisle and taking the bread and taking the cup am willing to walk that path to God in faith. And the only way that we could possibly get there, faith in this body being broken and this blood being shed for the forgiveness of sins. And as you come, if you are here today, you're unable to walk the aisle for physical reasons, then by all means, please raise your hand and someone would love to come and to serve you in your seat. And when you come and when you take these, we have three stations Take the elements, go back to your chair and hold them as we will take and proclaim together. So I'll ask our servers to come and please allow me to pray as they do. Father, when we think carefully about the crucifixion, the words, this is my body broken for you, and this is my blood shed for you takes on a whole new meaning, doesn't it? When we think carefully about those things, we can't help but have conflicting emotions within us of sorrow for our sin and gratitude to be brought back to you because of the forgiveness of our sins. As we take the Lord's Supper tonight, we recognize these things, both in sorrow, sorrow, 